Well, Plum Creek, once again, it is so wonderful to come and be with you all this weekend. Um, if you were not here last week, um, we started uh, a two-week mini-series, and so it's just a two-week series um, called Through, How to Get Through What You're Going Through. And uh, last week, we kind of opened up uh, some thoughts. Uh, one of the things we did last week is we said we we're going to take like a 35,000-foot view. We're going to kind of take a Google Maps perspective and a kind of zone out to take a look and see um, what does the Bible say about the difficulty we walk through? What does the Bible say about some of the hard times that we might experience? You know, and I don't know where you're at, and I know for myself, I've walked through a very difficult season here recently, and there's been many other seasons in my life where I've walked through were difficult. You might be in the midst of the darkest, hardest time that you've ever walked through in your life. Or you might know somebody that's walking through a really difficult time in their life. My hope is that this series wouldn't just simply help us feel better about what we're going through. That's not the goal. The goal of this series isn't to help us feel better about it. It's to help us think differently about what's going on in our life. To help us think differently about the realities that we faced. The circumstances we go through, but then also the spiritual reality that we seem to come in contact with. But for many of us, we don't even realize the things we're walking through are a spiritual reality. Last week, we talked about this verse that Paul wrote to the Romans, and it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And the verse says, and we know that in all things, not in some things, not in just hard things, not in just easy things, not in just situations that happen to us, but even situations that we might cause for ourselves, in all things, A-L-L, -L, all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean God makes all these things happen. Sometimes it's our decisions. Sometimes it's things that happen to us. And as we'll find out today, sometimes there's just some spiritual forces that really confront us. But no matter what is happening in all things, God is able to take, work for the good of those who love him. Most anyone can bring good out of good situation, but only Jesus can take ashes and turn them into beauty. Only Jesus can bring good situations out of difficult times. So that's kind of the core of this series and kind of the core of what we're talking about. Last week we also said that the maturity in our faith primarily happens through trials and struggles and things that we walk through. You know, I, I, I shared with you before, I was born in the Middle East, I was born in Iran, I grew up in Southern California, and um, the Middle East and Southern California have a lot in common. I mean, they just, they do. Um, there's crazy people in both places. And uh, how many of you here are from Southern California? Raise your hand. See, you used to be part of the crazy, but now you're part of the smart because you left and now you live, you live here in, in, in Colorado. But one of the things that's true, that there's a couple of similarities. One of the other similarities between the two areas is they're both dry climates. They're both actually desert climates. Both, most of the Middle East and Southern California, it's a desert. And yet some of the sweetest fruit in our world comes from the Middle East. Some of the sweetest fruit that is produced here, here in the United States is found in Southern California. Strawberries. I'll never forget growing up in Southern California and when the plum trees would, would start to blossom in the spring and we would climb up those trees and they're the best when they're really, really small and really, really tart. Some of the sweetest fruit grows in the desert. Now think about that. Some of the sweetest fruit in your life grows not on mountaintops, but in the desert seasons 
in the seasons where it seems like there's absolutely no hope. And that fruit that grows in those seasons is able to sustain you throughout the course of your life. Just this weekend, as Steve alluded to earlier in our time when we were singing in worship, just this weekend, Plum Creek experienced a horrible loss. The Riley family, Jamie and Stace, they lost a baby that was almost at full term. Devastating. Horrific. And so as we talk about this series, obviously we didn't plan talking about this series in the midst of that, but the Holy Spirit knew what was going to happen. In the midst of a situation like that, we're not just trying to tell people, hey, feel better about it. Change your emotions. Just put a smiley face on because everything happens for a reason. As we talked about last week, that's not even a right way of thinking about things. We're not trying to change our emotions. We're trying to change the way that we think. Not only about our trials, the way that we think about God and the way he interacts with us. And as we think differently, as Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our mind, as we think differently, our heart becomes morphed and our heart becomes changed. And as our heart becomes changed, guess what then gets changed? Our actions and our responses. And so we're going to kind of talk about this idea of suffering and trials in a little bit more in depth. And I just want to give us a couple of, just a couple of definitions to give us a good foundation and make sure we have a grasp on what we're talking about. Suffering, suffering is basically the pain you experience as a result of a trial. That's kind of what suffering is. Pain, it's a very technical definition, so I want you all to be ready for this. Pain, something you feel that hurts. All right? So something you feel that hurts. And lastly, trial, something circumstantially difficult that happens to you. So that's what we're talking about. And again, we introduced last week where suffering, pain, and trials came from. Suffering, pain, and trials were never, those are things that God never intended for us to experience. When he created humanity in the garden, he created us to be in perfect relationship with him without pain, without suffering, without trials. But yet when this thing called sin and brokenness entered the world through the disobedience, of our spiritual forefathers and mother, Adam and Eve. Then when sin entered the world, we now live life outside of God's original design, outside the garden. And life outside the garden includes brokenness, includes suffering, includes pain, includes trials. And so we see that Satan, he is the author of brokenness. That he has limited power in this world, yet his influence is great. And so for us to think rightly about the things that we're going through, we have to go back to the beginning. And who is the author of lies, the author of destruction, the author of pain, the author of murder? It's Satan. And so we're going to take a look at this. Jesus very plainly states in John chapter 10, verse 10, he very plainly states the mission of of Satan. And then he also gives his own little mission statement about his life. In John 10, 10, Jesus says that the thief... His purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And he will not stop until he does those things. That Satan's purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. But let me stop right there real quick. Even though Satan is the father of lies, he's the father of destruction, it's because of him that Adam and Eve were influenced and he twisted God's truth and we have now brokenness. Satan still should not be used as an excuse for the poor choices that we make. I've shared with you what my wife and I do with Athletes in Action. We serve college athletes. And I remember one time I got a call from an athlete. And he said, Reza, I'm in a lot of trouble. And and Satan's just really trying to get at me. 
And I was like, well, what's going on? Like, you know, what's happening? He's like, well, I just got my third positive drug test. And I thought to myself, well, dude, that's not like Satan's fault. You got to stop smoking weed. Like that's, you can't blame that on Satan. So, but sometimes the reality is we choose, we make choices that bring upon trials on ourselves. But what we'll find out today is no matter where our trial comes from, it's something that we cause or it's something that someone else's causes in our life or maybe it's something like health that really nobody has caused. God is still able to work for the good of those who love him. And so we shouldn't, I don't, I don't believe we blame, you know, demons and Satan for everything that happens, but yet there is a spiritual reality we must be awakened to. So the challenge for us isn't simply to avoid or manage suffering, but the challenge I want to present for us today is to learn to lean into God and his work in our lives when suffering comes about, whether it's from our choices or things that simply circumstantially happen to us. And so the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But then what does Jesus say? But I have come so that they might have what? Life. And not just a mediocre life, not just a regular life like everybody else, but an abundant, passionate, God-honoring life. And so we're going to talk about one passage of Scripture here. And if you take out your journey guide, you'll see on the back that passage of Scripture is listed there. And we have the main thought we'll get to here in a little bit. This passage of Scripture, I believe, this is just my, in my own thought, it's one of the absolute most frustrating passages in all of the Bible. It's disturbing and wonderful all at the same time. And we're going to take a look at this passage, and we're going to look at the truth of the passage, because the truth of it is absolutely wonderful. But we might read this passage and think to ourselves, well, this isn't how it should be. Jesus shouldn't be doing this. He should actually be doing something else. But as we dive into this passage, I want you to remember that if you love God, and if you're called according to his purpose, and if you have breath in your lungs and blood running through your veins, then you have a purpose. You're called according to his purpose and you look to Christ for hope, to you belongs the most wonderful promise that has ever been uttered in all of humanity. And it's a promise that Jesus prays for you. So here's the passage we're going to take a look at. It's found in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32 is basically where we're going today. And this is a conversation that Jesus is having, not just with Peter, but with all the disciples. This is right before Jesus was being betrayed. He was going he's, he um, to be turned over, have the trial. He's going to be crucified the next day, put in the tomb, and then rose on three. But before all of that happens, he has a conversation with Peter. And this is the conversation he has with Peter before he tells him that, he's gonna that Peter's going to deny him three times. And then obviously, some of us that know the story know that Peter went ahead and he did that. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon. Say, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, if Jesus is saying, like, those aren't very encouraging words. Hey, by the way, Satan is calling you out, and he's going to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus comes and says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, now, now put yourself in Peter's shoes here. Jesus just tells you that Satan's going to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus said, hey, don't worry, bro. I got your back. I'm going to pray for you. 
Like, if you're Peter, wouldn't you be like, well, thanks for the prayers, Jesus, but, like, can't you, like, stop, like, that whole sifting, like, wheat thing? Like, I would really like it if you stopped that rather than praying for me. Because we're going to find out as we really unpackage this verse that what Peter needed more than anything is not for Jesus to stop the sifting process. What Peter desperately needed and what we all need is for Jesus to be praying for us. We're going to dive in and figure out what that means. The main thought for today, listen and journey guide, is this. That the presence of Jesus propels us to the presence of the Father. And being in the presence of the Father is where we need to be. Okay? So as we take a look at this passage, I want us to take a look, and really as we unpack this package and pull back layers, one of the things we have to do is we have to go back to the language in which the passage was written. We read it in English, but the original language that it was written in was in Greek. And as we read this passage, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. Now we read that in our English perspective, and we think that Jesus is talking specifically to Peter. However, in the original language, that you is not a singular word, but it's a plural word. And so Jesus is talking to Peter, but essentially this is what he's saying. Simon, Simon, behold, again, he's in front of all the disciples. Satan has demanded to have all of you, that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wanted to go after the disciples. Satan wanted to go after those that loved God, that followed Jesus, that called themselves followers of Jesus. Satan has demanded to have all of them. You know, this reminds us a little bit of the conversation that Satan had with God in the book of Job. If you go back to the book of Job, Satan goes to God and he challenges him and says, look, these people, they don't really love you. And then God says, hey, look, take a look at my servant Job. I'm like, that guy, that's a righteous man. And Satan says, well, he's only righteous. Look at all the stuff he has. You blessed him with this, with family, with health, with wealth, all that stuff. I bet you if all that stuff was taken away, he wouldn't trust you anymore. So God grants Satan permission. And Satan goes to Job, but he takes his family away, takes his possessions away, ultimately takes his health away from him. And ultimately through all that, we, as we read the story, we find Job was really wrestling with God about why he would allow this to happen. But ultimately, God wins. And Job's faith is strengthened. You see, as we read that, we understand there's a few realities that we have to to understand about this conversation that Jesus is having with Peter, but then also that Satan was having with God regarding Job. First of all, we see that Satan has access to the Father. In some way, he has that conversation with the Father. Two realities I want us to understand about these interactions of Satan and God. The first one, Satan has a lot of power in this world. Satan has a lot of power in this world, but yet ultimately his power is not equal to God's power. He still has to ask God permission for some things to happen. The fact that Satan does have power in this world should not cause us to to be paranoid, but it should sober us up to understand there are spiritual forces that are not for us, but yet they're against us. And God knows that there's these spiritual forces that are against us. And so he wants to strengthen us, but not strengthen our will. He wants to strengthen our dependence upon him as these spiritual forces confront us. You see, when our enemy is supernatural, our weapons have to be supernatural as well. 
That's why Paul spends a whole last part of the book of Ephesians, the letter to he wrote to the Ephesians. He talks about spiritual reality, spiritual warfare. He talks about knowing truth, understanding righteousness, understand, having the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, all of these things that when our, when our enemy is supernatural, our weapons have to be supernatural as well. And one implication of Satan's words is that Satan is real. He has influence and he must be reckoned with seriously. The second reality as we take a look at trials and difficulty and things that happen in our life is that Satan's power is only by permission from God. And this is where it can get really confusing for us theologically. And that's just a big fancy word for thinking about God. This is where it can get really confusing for us. Because remember, ultimately there's not two equal powers in this world. If Satan wants to have the disciples, if Satan wants to wreak havoc in the lives of God's people, he's gotta ask God permission first. Well then the natural question for us, well if God is so great, and if God is so wonderful, and if God is so loving, and if Satan is the author of all these things that happen, why doesn't God just handle Satan and deal with Satan once and for all? For as we, read the, as we read the letter of Revelation at the very, very end, we read what John's revelation of what is to come, we see that Satan will be bound up when Jesus comes back for a thousand years. And after that thousand year reign, he will be destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. So the question for us is, well, why not now? Why does God allow Satan to wreak this kind of havoc? I believe the scripture leads to an answer. And the answer is this, because some way, somehow, and we'll dive into it today, the trials and the things that Satan allows in our, that Satan does in our life, that God allows, they lead us to be strengthened and encouraged. And not our bodies or our will, but our faith is strengthened and encouraged. God allows the sifting work to happen so that we be, our faith becomes straight and ultimately he receives more and more glory. So it's almost as if, we'll take a look at this right now, it's almost as if God uses Satan and the plans that he has for destruction and he has a role to play in fanning the flames of our refining furnace so that God may continue to refine us and to develop us and to mature us into the men and women he wants us to be that will reflect his glory. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. What does Jesus specifically pray for Peter? That his faith may not fail. If Jesus is going to pray that Peter's faith does not fail, then what is Satan's chief objective in these trials, in the sifting process? He's not going after Peter's body. He's not going after Peter's wealth. He's not going after Peter's reputation. What's he going after? His faith. So faith must, if Satan's going to go after our faith, then maybe faith plays a lot bigger role in our relationship with God than we ever gave it credit for. Now, one of the things we also got to remember is Jesus comes to Peter, but he doesn't call him Peter. What does he call him? Simon. Simon was the name that his parents gave him. And when Jesus met Simon out on the ocean, out on the Sea of Galilee, and as he was fishing, he came to him and said, hey, why don't you follow me? And by the way, let's change your name. Let's change your name from Simon to Peter. That means rock. Now, why throughout all the gospel, Jesus calls Peter, Peter, 
But in this moment, when he talks about Satan's sifting process and that his faith will not fail, why does Jesus call him Simon? Jesus is the one that changed his name. I think what Jesus was doing, he was reminding Peter of this pre-Christ condition. To say, hey, remember back then when you were weak? When you kind of spoke out of turn? When you really didn't have a lot of willpower? And now, Peter, since I've come on the scene these last few years, we've done ministry together. You've gotten better, but you're still cutting people's ears off with swords, and you're still saying things you shouldn't say all the time. What Jesus was doing was reminding him of his pre-Christ condition. He was reminding him that he's still human, that he's still going to fall. He's reminding him of his humanity. He's reminding him that he still lives life outside of the garden. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded that he can sift you like wheat. But don't worry, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You see, I think the greatest danger for us as believers isn't that we cease to believe in God. The greatest danger for us is that we cease to live a life of faith in God. Ultimately, when, when, when Peter turned around right after this and Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times, Peter's like, no, I won't. I'm going to follow you to the death. And then a few hours later, he denies him three times. That he lost faithfulness in following Jesus. I think that's the greatest danger we have. 1 John 5, 4 says, for every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory not through our will, not through how strong we are, how cunning we can be, but we defeat, we achieve this victory through our faith. And as we think about Jesus coming to Peter and saying, I'm going to pray for you, ultimately, what is prayer? What does prayer do? In its simplest form, what is prayer? Talking to God. And so in this, in this day and age, they didn't have cell phones or phone calls or email. Type. How would you talk to somebody? What, what has to be true if you're going to talk to somebody? You got to be face to face with them. You got to be in their presence. Prayer is being in the presence of God. That's what prayer is. If you're going to talk to him, you're in his presence. In our brokenness, we can't stand in the presence of God but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that his righteousness is placed upon us, we can stand in the presence of God in prayer. And so when Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to pray for you that your faith may not fail, so your faith is strengthened, essentially what Jesus is saying, in your weakness, in your weakest moment, through your deepest, darkest trials, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you and I will present you before the throne of God, the great creator of all. And when you're in the presence of God, guess what? You will be strengthened and your faith will be strengthened. For it was Jesus in his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane as he was praying to God, praying for us, his followers, he said, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the one and only true God. So knowing God the Father is the pathway to eternal life. And so Jesus says, in the midst of the darkest trial that you're going to walk through, Peter, I will pick you up personally, and I will present you before the throne. For as we talked about, when Jesus said, Satan demanded to have all of you, when he says, but I have prayed for you, 
That's not plural. That's a singular word that he prays individually for you and individually for you and individually for you. That's the depth of the love that he has for us. And so the result of our trials, as we ponder this passage, is that we are propelled to the presence of the Father by the prayers of Jesus and his faithful followers. That's why we pray for people that are walking through such dark and horrific times. It's because prayer propels people to the presence of God. You know, God's love and power anchors his followers, even in the, in the, in the reality of suffering. Growing up in Southern California, as I go along the ocean, you know, you see these docks and these ports where all these boats are anchored to, and, and there's some beautiful boats. There's yachts, there's, there's, you know, deep sea fishing boats, there's sailing boats. It's gorgeous when you look at all these boats. I remember one time I was taking a mission trip to Haiti and we're flying over the port of Miami. And I remember looking out the window and, and it was different because all the boats, they're not, they're, not, they're not anchored to the dock. They're anchored almost in the middle of the water. And I was thinking to myself, well, why, why do they do that? Out in California, they anchor them to the dock. Here in Miami, they anchor them in the middle of the water. And my friend that was next to me, he was from Florida. I said, hey, how come, how come they don't dock? How come they don't anchor to the dock? And he said, well, Reza, we got these things out here in Miami called hurricanes. And if your boat is anchored to the dock and the hurricane comes, guess what? You don't got a boat anymore. It's going to be destroyed. I thought to myself, oh. So we have to anchor our lives to the right things because if we anchor our lives to the wrong things, what happens to us? Our faith is destroyed. I want you to look at a few pictures that are going to be up on the screen behind me. Anyone know what that is? It's a butterfly. It's a beautiful butterfly. They're fluttering around all over right now in this day and age. Go, go to the next picture. These are the stages of a butterfly going from a cocoon to being able to fly out. And, you know, you see those little stages there. And on the left, it's wrapped up in the cocoon and it's morphing and it's changing into what God intended to be. And on the right, you've got that butterfly that flutters and goes out. And then my daughter catches it and brings it in the house and it dies a couple of days later. Or should I look at this next picture? There's the cocoon. That's where the changing takes place. That's where something ugly turns into something beautiful. Beauty from ashes. I was reading a devotional called Streams in the Desert. And in this, in this devotional, the writer was talking about really wanting to study this, the life of a butterfly morphing in a cocoon. And so he got a cocoon. He got one of those sets you can bring into your house and actually watch, watch a butterfly develop in a cocoon. And he was noticing some things about the cocoon. The cocoon was wrapped up so tightly and it was so wound up and it almost seemed confining. And yet he noticed that this butterfly, when it was ready to come out of the cocoon, he saw a little wing come out of that little space right there. And this butterfly was trying and trying and trying to get its arm out or, or its wing out to kind of pull... But then he noticed it was wrapped so tightly that it was almost as if the butterfly had absolutely no hope. And so he waited patiently and watched it and watched it and watched it, but the butterfly just didn't seem to be able to get out. So he thought to himself, I've lost my patience. I'm going to go get a, a pair of scissors. I'm going to actually have to cut that cocoon for that butterfly and help that butterfly. I just don't want to see that butterfly struggle anymore. And so he cuts that little hole and the butterfly kind of flops out. Little shriveled wings and a big swollen body. 
You see, this guy thought he could circumvent the process that God intended for this little creature. For the struggle to get out of the cocoon is what allows the blood to flow from the body of the butterfly into the wings to strengthen its wings so the butterfly can then go out and do what it's intended to do. But he wanted to circumvent God's process of struggle because he thought that was better. And I believe, and I know that God allows us to walk through the things that we're walking through. Not because he likes to see a struggle, but he knows we need it. Because in those moments of trouble, of those moments of trial, and those moments of struggle, it's not our will that is strengthened, it's our faith and our dependence upon him. And that's what we need to get through the brokenness that is in this world. You see, Jesus is interested in strengthening your will. He wants to strengthen your dependence upon him. Friends, I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what your family members are walking through. But would you allow God's process to take its time? We're not saying feel good about it. It's not about your emotions. It's about the reality of God and his work in our lives. And Jesus ends this conversation with his, with his disciples when he says, Satan has demanded to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your, strength, that your faith will be strengthened and not fail. And at the very end, he says, and when you have turned again, when you have become an overcomer, when you understand your faith is, when you've learned to depend on me, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Turn around and strengthen the lives of other people. For friends, last week when we talked about um, the boiling water and you put a potato in and it gets crushed, you put an egg in it, it becomes hardened, but you put a tea bag in there and it becomes changed and impacts its surroundings. When you learn to depend on God, when you walk through the things you walk through, you inevitably impact those that are around you by the testimony of your life. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all praise to the God and Father, uh, to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled. We will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. So God allows, you to allows us to walk through the things that we walk through so that our faith will be strengthened and we depend on him more and more and more and more and we lean into him, but also to encourage other people. He is the God that is able to take the mess of our lives and in turn, turn it into a message for this world. To take the tests that we experience and create them into a testimony that we share with other people so that they too, they can receive the comfort that God has given them. You know, it takes a village, they say it takes a village to strengthen and raise a child. I believe it takes a church and a body of Christ to strengthen and grow God's children and to strengthen our faith. It takes a village to raise children, it takes a church to strengthen our faith. So trusting God in the midst of suffering is a continual process that begins today and continues for the rest of our lives. There's only one antidote to the brokenness that it's in this, that's in this world. And that antidote isn't just get through it. That antidote isn't to cover up what you've done wrong. The antidote is Jesus and learning what it means to depend on him and lean into him. 
I want to come back to the chorus of the song that we sang a little earlier. It's a song that is sung very often here at, at Plum Creek, and it's a song, Ocean. Listen to the chorus. Spirit, lead me to where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wonder, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of our Savior. You see, God used the greatest suffering of all, crucifixion on the cross, to bring about the greatest good for all of humanity, and that's redemption and bringing us back into the presence of our Father. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close? I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And I don't want to make light of the things we're walking through. I want us to be real and transparent. No matter what brought you to the situation that you're walking through, Jesus loves you and cares for you. I'm going to read this final verse, and then I'm going to pray for us. Paul said, We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting, where our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, our faith. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal and never fade away. God is more interested in your faith and your dependence growing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you in this time together. Lord, and I know that there are many of us here that have either walked through hard times or in the middle of a hard time or know someone that's walked through a hard time. Inevitably, whenever we experience this brokenness, the question continues to come up as why. And so, Lord, we will never fully understand why you allow situations to happen. But as we learn to think differently about these circumstances and these situations, I pray that we would understand that you are most interested in our character development, not our comfort. And so, Lord, you will receive glory through the things that we walk through, and we thank you for that. So, God, for all of us that are here, me included, I pray that you would continue to lead us upon the waters where our faith will be made stronger, not that we would continue to do Christian things better, but in our heart we would be so passionately dependent on the power of Jesus to strengthen our faith as we walk through this world. The reality is this world is broken. There will be hard times, but our God is greater, and Jesus, you have overcome this world, and you live in us through your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, for people that are here that would say, this is a season for me, this is a time for me, where I need to make a conscious decision in my mind to lean into Jesus like never before. For some of us, it might be awakening to the reality that Jesus, you are for us and not against us. And if that's anyone in this room right now, would you just simply raise a hand in acknowledgement saying, that's who I am, God. Would you pray for me? So I'm just gonna wait and allow you just hands to go up. And just as we said what Jesus is going to do for Peter and the disciples, I want to do for us in prayer. So just simply raise a hand up if you're in that season right now. Yes, God. Lord, you see the hands that are raised. Ultimately, you don't just see hands. You see hearts 
and you see souls and you see your children that you love. So God, we thank you for who you are, for what you do in our lives and through our lives. And by the power in the majestic name of Jesus, we pray and seal all of these things. Amen.